All right. Well, we're back again. All right. Hopefully, uh, we're ready to uh, jump back in Ephesians chapter five, and <clears throat> we're thinking through this. And I figured I'd pick a topic that hopefully would uh, keep us engaged a little bit. And so, for the next few minutes, we're going to be talking about sex, and that will hopefully keep you awake for a little bit. Uh, and, and and here's why. And I sort of joke about that part of, partly, but. But here's why we want to talk about this particular topic. One is because it's in Ephesians and we're walking through Ephesians. Uh, and, and the Bible speaks of the topic of sexual purity, sexual immorality, sex and marriage, outside of marriage with unrelenting frequency. Uh, and our culture that we live in preaches this message uh, of sex as Savior uh, unashamedly. And so we are living in this tension and this balance between what the scripture tells us and what we know to be true from God's word but yet the culture seems to be constantly through every means necessary saying something other than that and so if we are going to be faithful to uh, followers of Jesus if we're going to lead our sons and daughters uh, those in our church through this deal we've got to press in and say God would you help us heal in this would you help us grow in this would you give us what is right and true about this and so Ephesians 5 we're going to spend a little bit of time there um, I was talking to some guys I said you know I think Ephesians chapter 5 may be the most practical chapter in the Bible for men I mean there it touches on pretty much everything uh, it talks uh, about money sex uh, cussing, crude joking, getting drunk, God's will, marriage, and then right into chapter 6 talks about being dads. I'm like, well, that's pretty much it. Like, we're pretty simple guys. That's pretty much all we deal with. But it talks about all of these issues here. And so here's what happens is Paul is writing to, to the Ephesian church. And this is classic. Uh, if you read through a lot of Paul's letters, whether it's Romans or different places uh, the, uh, in the epistles, a lot of times this is the, the method that you'll see. You'll see theology at the beginning and practical at the end you'll see sort of orthodoxy and orthopraxy so chapters 1, 2, and 3 uh, we, we see Paul building his case theologically chapters 4, 5, and 6 we see the implications of that applicationally and so that's what we have here in chapter 5 uh, he starts by saying therefore which is a link back to all of the theology that he has just built upon and he's going to say okay now let's apply these things that we've talked about so we don't have time to apply uh, to every one of these issues but I wanted to take this one particular issue and kind of delve into it and see what God's word says here in Ephesians 5 uh, and talk about that a little bit. So let's read, uh, let's start in verse 1 of Ephesians 5. It says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as it is improper as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure who is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now jump all the way down to verse 32. He's talking about uh, verse uh, 31. It says, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so here Paul is talking about, let's, let's apply the message that we've been talking about. Uh, 
Hey, look at that. Perfect timing. Thank you. Um, what's that? Oh, okay. Okay, great. Um, talk, Paul is talking about this idea, uh, and he says two things about sexuality here. He says, one, uh, let there not even be a hint. I think if you have an NIV, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. Here in the ESV is what I'm reading from. Uh, let, let all of these things not even be named among you. And so there's this idea of, of flee from, run from, protect from, uh, all of these things about uh, sexual immorality. So there's a warning against these things. And so when we see this word sexual immorality, uh, here's what the word literally is. In the Greek, it's the word porneia, which you can kind of venture, I guess, maybe where we uh, use our word for, for pornography. But this is a catch-all word. Uh, the word sexual immorality, this term, literally means any, uh, any sexual expression outside the covenant relationship of marriage. So anything that you can think of, I'm not going to list all those things because it gets weird, but anything that you can think of outside of a, of a man and woman in uh, a sexual relationship, anything else is porneia, sexual immorality. So it's this huge word that captures a lot of things. And he says, let that not even be named among you. Let not even a hint of that be in your life. So he's warning against that. But he doesn't stop there. And I think that's the beauty of the sexual ethic of the scriptures. It's not only warning, but it's also celebration. And so here at the end, it says, look, we read about this in Genesis 2. They're naked and there's no shame. They shall become one flesh. And so there's this beauty that is celebrated in sex, but there's also this warning against sexual immorality. And somewhere in between, we, we sort of have to figure out where we land and how do we, how do we enjoy what God has given in this gift, but without being overwhelmed by what culture tells us is right. And that's a really difficult place to kind of manage. It's a difficult place for us to figure out how do we live and exist in that. How do we lead our boys um, or our students in uh, a, a understanding of of this deal uh, and so I think I think when we think about this I, I want to challenge us to think on these two levels of one is warning against but celebration for uh, and, and depending on where you are you might lean one way or the other I think a, as a church we might be warning against and saying how bad it is and what the evils are and all of these things and rightly so but we forget to celebrate that this is a good gift that God has given the church or you fly all the way over here and there's a church that will go unnamed that you can Google about later where the pastor decided to do a series on sex and in order to promote it, he and his wife laid in a bed on the roof of the church for like a week and I don't know what they were doing there and, or what, but I'm like, it just seems so weird to me that they're celebrating it in a way that's kind of weird and so maybe we've, we've forgotten about the warning against some of these things and so somewhere in the middle is maybe where we need to land but... But I think as a culture, probably, we, we, we land in one of two places. One is, and I think most of what culture says, and I wanted to write these things on here just so that we... Um, am I going to buzz, right? Okay. So that... This is the weirdest whiteboard ever. Um, is I think we think of it... We think of these things in, in one of two ways. Uh, we think often, uh, culturally, what our culture is telling us is that sex is savior, it's messianic, it is the ultimate expression of humanity, the ultimate expression of love. If you don't experience sex, you're not fully human, and that is this, this over-emphasis uh, on this idea that sex is, is the it, it is the ultimate thing. And so you say, well, I don't know, that seems like maybe a bit of an extreme. Well, 
I, I could read statistic after stati- statistic to tell us this is kind of where we are as a culture. A couple things. Uh, and statistics are really hard to, uh, to, to grab, especially with online stuff because it's, it's hard to say. But th- this one stat blew my mind. It said that it is estimated that the worldwide pornography industry is $97 billion a year. $13 billion just in the U.S. alone. That 12% of all web pages are adult contact uh, content web pages, 12% of all on the internet. Uh, I haven't read this book. Fifty Shades of Grey was kind of a, uh, took the world by storm recently. They're making a movie about it, and so there will be probably even more controversy or discussion about it as it comes out. But just some statistics about it that were mind blowing. It is the fastest book to sell a million copies on the Kindle, it's the fastest selling paperback book of all time. Uh, the series has sold 70 million copies in 30 different languages. Uh, there was one hotel chain in Europe that actually decided that it would be a good idea to remove the King James Bible and in place put Fifty Shades of Grey in the nightstand in the hotel. Uh, and so there is that. This Another statistic, every two and a half minutes somewhere in America, somebody is sexually assaulted. So we, we have this sex-saturated culture that we live in. And we live in this, and, and, and some of us fight against that, and we want to flee against that. And some of us are drawn into it. And even in this room, there's guys going, man, that's, that's where I live. I'm wrestling. I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I feel ashamed. And here's what happens is we think of sex as Savior. We think this is the ultimate expression of reality and humanity, and, and this is where I'll find comfort. This is where I can control things. This is where I'll find intimacy and joy and pleasure. And these are the places that I go to to find those things. Well, the word here that Paul uses, he says in verse 5, look, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. So he uses these words and the word, the, the little phrase, this is an idolater, can be applied to all three of those words. Uh, sexually immoral, impure, and covetousness. That is idolatry. So the word idolatry, often when we hear that word, we kind of think of an ancient culture and maybe like a little statue or something. And, and back in, in what they, they would worship the statue. And we're like, well, we're not really idolaters. We don't, we've evolved as a culture much beyond that. But literally, the word idolatry means setting up as God anything other than God. To making a good thing an ultimate thing. And here Paul says, look, money can be an idol. Sex can be an idol. When we put uh, sex as the ultimate expression of humanity, that it is the place where we find comfort and control and intimacy and joy above God, then it's become an idol in our lives. And that's where we find ourselves. Uh, So sex is not messianic. It cannot save you. It is a gift, but the giver is yet better still so we've got to be reminded that the giver is better than the gift that it's not uh it's not uh going to save us but the second area that maybe the church is erred on maybe if this is the cultural area we often in the church have uh in order to avoid that we said well sex in all its forms is just shameful it's wrong it's dirty uh we shouldn't talk about it and I think that's, that's honestly kind of where I grew up. So I came to, to faith later in life. And um, in most of the sexual ethic that I heard about, that I, that I read about, was basically just don't really talk about it, don't do it, run away, flee from it, it's wrong, it's going to mess you up. And so it's like, okay, cool, well, I'll just run away from it. And then all of a sudden I walk down an aisle and I say my vows and then I'm standing there and for years 
I had seen this thing as dirty, wrong, and shameful. And then all of a sudden, what was a red light is now a green light. And I had no idea how to process this. And I'm like, so I can, so I, I don't know, like you're, Shannon and I, we waited until we were married to have sex. And then we were thinking like, how do I flip the switch to make this good? And what Paul does, I love, is he warns against immorality, but celebrates sex inside the right context. I think that is the ethic that we need to grow in, is not saying it's so wrong, just run away from it and don't do it. It's wrong, run away from certain portions of it, but there is a relationship that God has designed for us to experience this good gift that he has given us on purpose. Guys, it's not a shock to God that that people started having sex. He kind of created human anatomy. He didn't look down and go, what are they doing? How did they figure that out? This is crazy. No, it was his idea. He made human bodies to form ways that it was pleasurable and it was a joy to do those things. It's his idea. It's been hijacked by our culture, but it's not dirty and wrong. It is good and right in the certain context that he's given us to enjoy it. And so that was, that was a part that I really had to grow in, is not seeing sex as dirty and wrong, but seeing it as good and right and a good gift. So some of y'all single guys, I want to uh, remind you of that, that, that you are called at this phase in your life to flee sexual immorality, and that means setting up very particular boundaries and, and parameters and being diligent and vigilant in those things, but at the same time, not demonizing it in your mind, because there'll be a day by God's grace that you get married, and if all you've done is demonized it, there'll be a day where you're like, well, I don't know how to enjoy this well. But other, there's other guys that, uh, that have jumped into uh, the, the believing that the, the culture says and that there's nothing wrong with this. It's, it's all right. It's going to help be helpful to me if I, if I look at this. It's going to help my relationship my wife, with my wife if I watch this movie or this scene or this website. And that is not true because we've misunderstood what sex is. We've misunderstood it and defined it as something that is just for my pleasure and my enjoyment instead of what God has created it for. So what has God created it for? What is the purpose of sex? There's, there's many. I just want to do three here. Um, there we go. I don't know if y'all will be able to see if I write down there. Let's just talk about the three purposes we have. Uh, number one is procreation, Right? God told us in Genesis early on, he told humanity to be fruitful and multiply, and he gave them a means by which to do that. Procreation is just a fancy word for making babies. Uh, He said, look, look, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And if you guys have, have had the joy and privilege of having kids, there is nothing in the world like that. There's nothing in the world like standing in that delivery room and what wasn't a child on the outside but was in the womb becomes a child on the, uh, and you're holding it and it's absolute. I mean you can't even describe or explain there is such joy there is such a, a pride of, of saying God you've allowed me to be a part of creating life and what a cool deal because God is a creative God Genesis 1 he creates all the things that are he's a very creative God he created your eye 
eye to be able to, to absorb color and it flips it upside down. I don't even know how all that stuff works, but, but he does that. He creates tortoises and birds and koalas and all the, the horses and he creates those things. I'm sure God just has a blast. So for some of you who are artists, you're like, man, I just want to create things. I want to write things. I want to sculpt things. That's a divine impulse that you have because that is a part of the character and nature of God. And if you were to look around, even in a room like this, we all sort of look similar but we're all absolutely different because God is a unique creator and he created you in your mother's womb and he allowed allows us to be a part of the creation of life and so procreation is a part of that Genesis 1 says it like this be fruitful and multiply fill and subdue the earth what we have done culturally is we have removed the creation of life from the gift of sex through abortion, through all sorts of different means. And we have tried to say, no, we want to enjoy the gift without the repercussions of it. And so God created it purposefully so that we might be a part and partakers of the divine order of creation. Um, The magnificence of sex and the miracle of life are intricately linked together, purposefully linked together. I mean, God could have, he's a creative God, right? There are, there are organisms in the world that don't reproduce via these means, right? There are hydra. Have you ever heard of the hydra? Uh, some sort of a sea creature. You know how the hydra reproduces is it, it grows a bulb and that bulb like, I don't, like off its, the side of its body kind of pops off and it becomes its own organism now, right? It's like, that is crazy. Like what if we reproduce like that? You're just walking along... There's a baby. All right, cool. There you go. Right? The amoeba, the amoeba doesn't have sex. The amoeba simply splits from one into two, and now there's two things. I think of, you ever see the movie Gremlins when they get water poured on them, and, you know, like, now there's new gremlins? Like, God is creative, and he could have said, you know what? We're going to do it that way. I'm so glad he didn't. He, because there's purpose and order in saying, I want you to experience intimacy and pleasure and I want you to be a part of that I want this to be a joyful experience because when you create life it is joy it was a joy for God to create he loved it and he wants us to experience the joy of creation and being a part and partakers of of filling and subduing the earth so he lets us do that well the second purpose of sex it's not just um, purposeful although procreation is purposeful But he's created and given us this unique relationship and this unique part of this relationship uh, for intimacy. So he has designed marriage purposefully and designed this one unique part of marriage purposefully so that you would experience new and and redeemed and, and restored intimacy with this one person. So there are a lot of things that you can do with a lot of different people, but there is a uniqueness about your relationship with your wife that there is a unique intimacy that happens there that doesn't happen other places. There's a unique part and a unique expression of marriage that you are in, a, in, in two flesh becoming one. There's a physical reality to, to what happens there that doesn't happen in any other relationship. And so God has given you this gift for intimacy. Uh, Genesis 2 again says, we read this earlier, that they were, they were naked and felt no shame, that the two became one flesh. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's talking to the church and he's answering their questions. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6. Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Now I want to remind you that this is the Bible 
He's, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and they're asking questions like, so Paul, is it like cool if I sleep with a prostitute? Like this is the church asking these questions. And so sometimes we think of the people in the Bible as like spiritual superheroes. And Paul is answering the questions of the church of like, no, it's, it's not good. It's not okay for you to sleep with prostitutes. And here's why. Not just to put up sort of moral parameters to be a killjoy. The reason you can't sleep with somebody who's not your wife is because what happens when you sleep with this person, there's a physical, emotional, spiritual union that happens that is designed and kept for this unique covenant relationship. And when you sleep with somebody who's not your wife, you are ruining the picture that God gave you. He gave you sex for intimacy because that intimacy is supposed to preach and proclaim the intimacy that Christ and the church have together. And so this, this becomes, this is, it's, it's gotten so far away from our understanding uh, of how this works that it almost seems weird to think about God wanting us to have sex because we have so removed God from, from this deal, from the bedroom, that it, it becomes something completely different. Song of Solomon, y'all have read it, I'm sure. Um, there's places in there, you know, it, there, it's, there's lots of different ways of people have interpreted Song of Solomon, but I think it's pretty clear. Um, when you read things like Psalm of Solomon 7, how beautiful you are and how pleasing, O love, with your delights, your stature is like that of a palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. I mean... May your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples, the mouth like the best wine. Like, that's the Bible. And some of y'all are like, sign me up, Bible study. When are we doing that series, right? But, but the, here's the deal. As you read that and you're like, whoa, it seems so, so crazy that that's in the Bible. And the reason it seems crazy that that's in the Bible is because we have absolutely redefined what sex is to be something other than God glorifying. We have said, no, sex is dirty, it's wrong, it's shameful, it's to be done uh, in ways that, that no one knows about and in the recesses of my heart and soul, whether that's through looking at pornography or these types of things, and it's changed the way we viewed sex to where now we can't even understand the purpose of it anymore. We, we've re rearranged and redefined it to where godly sex is almost an oxymoron in our vocabulary. But it's never intended to be that way. God, from the very beginning, created them, Adam and Eve, naked and no shame, two becoming one, so that they might be experiencing intimacy, that they might be a partakers of creation of life. And then the final thing is this, is this, and we've touched on this, but so not only to make babies, not only for intimacy, but to, to honor God. So sex is actually a means by which we honor God. Um, Romans 6 says it like this. It says, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, the gospel, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. The way that you... The way that you are. This is the same verse that he's talking about, uh, the two becoming one flesh. And so we see this reality happening here of God giving us a unique relationship that houses human sexuality. Uh, I love the way John Piper, he's an author, I'm sure y'all may have heard of John Piper and pastor for years and years. He wrote this. He says, Procreative, intimate, 
pleasurable and God-glorifying sex was given to humanity so that we would know and display the beautiful, holy, life-giving love of God. And God designed sex and He designed the relationship that could house the power of human sexuality. So God designed sex and He designed the relationship that could house the power of human sexuality. The relationship that He's given us is called marriage. And what happens is, we'll talk about this a little bit uh, in, in the next session about what this looks like, but he has said, look, there's a relationship, there's this covenant relationship between husband and wife, and this relationship is designed to display how he loves humanity. And so part of the design of that is that this relationship would be unique among all relationships that we have with any other people. There's more intimacy, more pleasure, more joy in this relationship and that happens at the deepest level when man and wife are naked and feel no shame and the two become one flesh. But that's actually an image used by God to show the relationship that he has with his church. And so sex becomes a means by which we honor God in this covenant relationship. And so if you think through the Old Testament, you think, okay, God has made covenants with people, right? There's multiple large covenants, the Davidic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the New Covenant. And so you read through these, and, and whenever God makes a promise, a covenant with people, He promises them something, and then He seals it with a symbol or a sign, right? In Genesis 12, He does the Abrahamic covenant, and He promises your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, there'll be a land. So He makes them specific promises, and then He seals that promise with a symbol or a sign called circumcision, there's the Noahic covenant. He says, I promise I'm going to protect you from the flood. I'm going to, re, I'm going to use you to uh, re-multiply and, and be fruitful to fill the earth. And there's a similar sign. The rainbow is the sign that God won't destroy the earth. It is a promise of hopefulness. And he uses that symbol in the Noahic covenant. In marriage, there's a promise and there is a symbol or a sign that shows this deal. And so we're entering into a covenant relationship called marriage. The promise is the vows and the seal is the sex. The promise is the vows. It is a covenant relationship. I was at a coffee shop yesterday uh, morning with a couple that I'm performing their wedding. And I said, uh, and this is just the pastor talking, but I'm like, look, I don't care about the cake, the tux, the dress, the makeup, the pictures, the place. None of those things matter to me. And the bride is like, you know, it's like just weeping. I'm like, I'm just, I'm not really a romantic guy. So I apologize to my wife about that. I'm like, this is what matters to me in this wedding ceremony. When you two look at one another and you hold hands and before all of your friends, before God, you say, I promise I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. You are my joy. You are my prize. You are the one. And you make a vow before God and before your friends. and before. For me, that's the moment... That's the only moment that really matters in that marriage ceremony for me because that's where God is beginning to form this covenant relationship. And then the joy of that, the symbol of that, the seal of that is when we promise that two become one with our vow. The seal of that, the image of that is when two bodies become one body in the sexual union. So this is all, this is all God's design. God is creative. He's like, how can I show forth my glory? How can I tell people about what it means to feel intimate? What can I, what can I, what can I possibly do to let people know that they can, they can feel loved and accepted and that, that, that joy and pleasure is a real thing and that religious activity isn't just about following rules, but it's about joy. And how can I, what can I possibly do? And he says, I have an idea. I will give them the, the, the type of pleasure that they can find nowhere else. 
except for in this relationship. So they will want to run back to intimacy with their wife over and over and that will be such a place of protection and joy and communication and intimacy. Why? Because I want that to be the place when they think about sex, I want them to think about the pleasure that they have between, the, between God and the church. I want them to be reminded of what that looks like. So he's reminding them of that. He's using this covenant relationship to lead them in that. And so we ask, okay, what, is, what does it mean then? How does the gospel apply to this? Guys, I, I recognize this, that w- when, when you talk about this, when you hear about this, when you, when you feel this, there are deep uh, wounds, whether it's through divorce, through adultery, through pornography, through whatever means it is, there are deep, deep wounds. Uh, and I don't want to belittle those, I want to recognize those, but I also want you to recognize this, that the gospel and the grace of God is even more powerful than those wounds. And that's why the gospel is good news to us. And we read about this here in Ephesians and we ask ourselves, how can we do that? How can we live in this, this, this culture that is telling us one thing, but the Bible is telling us another and it seems so hard, so difficult to actually live this stuff out? Well, we spent last night talking about what it means to be in Christ. Remember, we started building a, an idea of what it means to have an identity in Christ. And Paul doesn't say, say it only in chapter 1 and then forget about it. I don't know if you saw this in Ephesians one, uh, 5, verse 1. He says, look, therefore, be imitators of God. So I want you to have the same character, the same holiness of God. And you're just like, man, that seems really hard to do. But what is the very next phrase? I want you to imitate God in your sexual ethic, in your purity, in the way that you love your wife, in that intimate relationship. I want you to be imitators of God as beloved children. So that's why our identity in Christ is so powerful. So, uh, so we've got to be reminded that we're adopted, that we're redeemed, that we're set free, that we are in Christ and not out of Christ. But we're reminded of our identity. It says, be imitators of God. How do I possibly imitate God? You imitate Him because you're His Son. You take on His characteristics. You take on the way that He talks. So my boys, my, my oldest is nine. And... Uh, you know, he, he sits in church sometimes and he's like, Dad, wh- why do you, whenever you preach, you always go, the gospel. And I'm like, I don't think I do that, number one. But he's like, yeah, you do. And then the other ones, they're, they're walking around and they're, they're mocking Dad. They're, and uh, so I'll say something and they'll go, Dad, the gospel. And I'm like, I don't do that. Uh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're convinced in my mind that whenever I stand in front of anybody, that's what I do. Is it? And I'm like, well, I guess at the end of the day, if I have to be known for saying one word, I'm like, all right, I'll take that. Uh, but, but they take on my characteristics. They take on the way that I act. And so for, for me to look at them and go, oh, man, they, my, my oldest is really competitive. Uh, he's playing uh, baseball right now, and he struck out, and, um, and he took off his helmet, and he hurled that sucker against the fence and... Uh, his coach grabbed him and pulled him aside and was like, son, you're not going to be playing if you have that attitude. The, the way that we're playing is that we're going to try hard and we're going to encourage him. And I love that. I'm assistant coach uh, and I love that the head coach pulled him aside and said, no, we're not going to do that. It's not how we play this game. And I'm like, I want to coach him up. But when I was nine, I didn't throw my helmet. I just threw the bat. I'm like, you know, or golf club. I have gone through multiple golf clubs, thrown them into lakes. I mean, I'm just, I'm like, I guess the apple hasn't fallen that far from the tree. Um, I t- he takes on my characteristics. And as imitators of God, here's what it says. As beloved children, imitate your father. 
walk in holiness. How do we do that? Because He is holy. How do we walk with a, with a pure sexual ethic? Because He designed it. He knows it best. He's pure and He's called us to purity. And so guys, that, I want to challenge you in that, that the way we got into sin, according to Paul, is sexual sin is idolatry, which means we, we worshipped our way into sin. We, we, we made sex a savior and we want to worship our way into sin because we think that in sin we can find life and intimacy and joy and peace. We worshiped into sin. We have to worship out of sin. We have to, I love the way the Puritans say it. The Puritans uh, use this phrase that there is an expulsive power of a new affection. That when a new affection, when I, that's why I love corporate worship because what it does is it sets our eyes up to who God is. And when we begin to actually worship the true and living God, that's where true joy is. That's where intimacy is. That's where comfort and all of those things that we long for. We look to everything else to find it. And he's like, stop looking, it's in me. And so we have to have this expulsive power of a new affection to say, God, would you pull this, this God-likeness out of this, uh, where I'm, where I'm pra- placing it in sexuality, in money, and whatever else. And God, would you replace it with a true and lasting joy? Last story, I'll finish with this. I was pulling weeds and I've got a lot of them. Now it's spring in my yard and, and uh, those things grow fast. I'm like, we, we pull them out and they grow back. And so uh, I could have bought, you know, like uh, some Roundup for like $4.99 at Home Depot, but I decided I want to teach my boys some lessons on life and work. And so I'm like, all right, boys, grab a shovel uh, and we're going to go out in the yard. We're going to pull these weeds. And uh, so we're out there pulling. I mean, these guys are, you know, I don't know those, those whatever they're called, but they're big old things. And and so I'm teaching them, you know, you've got to dig it out from the roots or else it's going to go right back. We're going to be out here in three days and it's going to be back up. So, so I teach them, you know, get under, get the roots out. We're going to dig this thing up. Uh, and so we're out there and I, I teach them. They've got their shovels, so they're doing their little section. And I go over here and I'm doing my section. Uh, and then I turn around and I see my middle boy, Seven. He's got his shovel and he's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. And his whole section's done. He's like, done. I'm like, Wait. How'd you do that so fast? And so I go over and upon further review, I say, you didn't, you didn't cut the weeds out. You just cut the tops off. He's like, yeah, what's the difference? Uh, and I said, well, it's going to grow right back. He's like, yeah, but it's gone now. And I'm like, how do I argue this with a seven-year-old? And, and, and I said, no, you've got to dig down. And I said, look, give me your shovel. You've got to dig down. You've got to get these roots out. And he goes, man, that's way too hard. I was like, you're right. That is way too hard but it's going to come back every couple of days, every couple of weeks, every couple of months. And guys, we have got to have the explosive power of a new affection. We've got to actually worship the true and lasting God because if we only cut it off at the top, but we let the roots of sin remain every couple of weeks, every couple of months, it's going to come back and we're going to start worshiping that false idol all over again. And you find yourself in this, this continual cycle of sin and you repent and you're never going to do that again. Never, ever, never, ever going to do that again. And three weeks later, you find yourself back in that same place. Why? Because we never pulled the roots out. We only cut the top off. And how do we pull the roots out is we repent, come before God and say, God, please, would you forgive me? Would you bring me back in? And he's a good father who does that. We go to our community and say, guys, I need your help. We, we, we bring them into it with us. We go to the scripture. We spend time. Quiet time in the scripture is not only offensive, but sometimes defensive. It's a means by which we build spiritual strength so that in the morning we spend time in the word. So when the temptation will come and it does come in the afternoon, we've built some spiritual muscle to say, no, I'm not going to go there. And, and guys, I'll tell you, I've, this is my story that if, if I, 
Normally when I find myself falling into temptation, I'll look back over the last week or two and I'm like, that's about right. I didn't spend any time in the Word in two weeks. And so that seems about right. I didn't build up any spiritual muscle. I had no defense. I was in a war with no helmet on and I got shot. What a big shocker. Uh, that happens. That's the way we build spiritual muscles, spending time in the Word, going to community, coming to before the Lord and keeping short accounts with God as if He uh, already knows and He does. So that's my hope for us, guys that we would be imitators of God as beloved children, that we would know our identity and that would inform our sexual ethic and that we would grow in grace in this particular area. Let me pray for us. Uh, and, and just a word for you forward thinkers who are going, are we about to go into small group and talk about our sex lives? This, is a li- this might get weird. I, I want to encourage you to go to your group. I, I, I purposefully uh, didn't ask leading questions knowing that you're going to be in groups with maybe guys that you don't know and, and this may not be the most comfortable conversation to have. Uh, uh, the questions are designed that, are gonna, that hopefully will, will help you kind of process through the scripture. Um, but I want to encourage you to find some guys. If this is an area that you need to press into, find some guys maybe during free time and just say, hey, man, I'd love to just chat for, with you for a minute about that talk and uh, there's a couple things I'd love to just ask for your prayer on. Maybe somebody that you know that's going to be in your church, in your life, in your small group. Um, and so don't avoid your small group discussion time thinking that it's going to get really awkward because I don't think it will. Uh, and even if it does, press into those guys, love those brothers. Um, let me pray for us and we will jump into that. Father, thanks for your grace and your kindness towards us. Thanks that we are your sons, that we can imitate you as our dad. Uh, thanks that you have warned us about immorality sexual immorality but you've also helped us celebrate it thanks for those of these guys uh, who are married thanks for their wives and lord pray for their marriages that they may display uh, the goodness of how you love humanity lord i pray for these men that there may be uh, they may be struggling with marriage they may be struggling with this particular area god would you bring about healing and freedom and repentance and i pray even that this would catalyze some conversations with husbands to their wives that they may be able to sit down and talk through these things with their wives and there might be healing that comes through this that your spirit would lead them and guide them in that so god we ask for that and pray that you'd be with us this afternoon and let us have lots of fun uh, lots of laughs lots of memories uh, but also bring your spirit into that as well in christ's name amen